And we're back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and the rest of the world via the online streaming service on our new website at cfmu.ca. Check out cfmu.ca. It has live streaming. It has podcasting archives for unusual sources. You can find our page there. Now, today we have a very special guest in the studio, and it's uh, someone who's a favorite among many of our listeners, and he's actually physically here today with us. It is Ottawa-based author, journalist, blogger with What's Left, and author of multiple books, Stephen Gowan. Stephen, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Brendan. It's nice to be here at McMaster. Yes. Well, it's good to be in the old stomping grounds. And uh, certainly uh, you've come to um, enlighten us once again. Uh, we had you here previously to talk about your excellent book on Syria, which is even today still being reviewed, receiving new reviews. Today we're here to talk about uh, Stephen's brand new book as of this month, May 1st, coming out, Patriots, Traitors, and Empires, the story of Korea's struggle for freedom. Now, Stephen, you just presented on this book twice in Hamilton. I think you have four more stops to go on the tour. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I'll be in Toronto and also doing something in Ottawa and in Vancouver uh, in June. It's a busy schedule for Stephen, and uh, we managed to drag him all the way to the basement here and trap him in the interview room because Stephen's book is something I've had the pleasure to read large sections of. I'm a little bit ahead of the game in comparison to most of the people that have been at the talks in the last two days because I have a pre-production copy of the book, and I recommend everyone purchase the book, Patriots, Traders, and Empires, from Baraka Books. It's available online. Now, this is a story of Korea. As I was pointed out to me, and I was admonished by Robin Philpot, the publisher, it's not a sto story or a book about North Korea or the DPRK. It is a story about Korea because it is one people. It is a country that should be unified. It has been divided because of its involvement in very large struggles about post-colonialism and decolonization, uh, world wars, and so forth. There's a few themes that really tie the book together, and we'll be talking in, about that and exploring some of the issues of the book in reference to those major themes. I suppose one of them that's evident on the title, on the cover itself, is freedom. It's called The Story of Korea's Struggle for Freedom. And I'm sure some smart aleck might say, well, we're talking about the DPRK, we're talking about North Korea, that's a heavily armed garrison state. How can you talk about freedom in reference to North Korea? So when you talk about Korea and the Korean people struggling for freedom as a whole, what is it that you're referring to? Um, yeah, freedom. I'm referring to freedom in several respects, but the most basic one is freedom from foreign domination. And as you mentioned at the outset, I'm not talking in this book about North Korea specifically, but about Korea as a whole. Um, so this is the struggle of Korean people for freedom from foreign domination. Uh, and the title of the book, Patriots, Traitors, and Empires, the last word in the title, empires, uh, refers to two empires, actually. One was the Japanese Empire, which imposed the colonial tyranny on Korea from 1905 to 1945. And the second empire that's being referred to here is the U.S. empire, 
which from 1945 to present has had a unbroken military presence on the Korean Peninsula and has exercised an extraordinary influence over the affairs and the everyday life of Koreans, not only in the South, but also in the North. So when I talk about struggle for freedom, I'm talking about the struggle for freedom from foreign domination or the struggle to achieve what the UN Charter promises all countries, which is equality and sovereignty. Uh, I would argue that Korea is not regarded as an equal country, as equal with others, uh, and it's not a country, if we're talking about Korea as a whole, as South and North, uh, that it's not a people, if you wish, that has sovereignty, and not has the freedom to determine its own destiny. Yes, I'm reminded of something Jean Briquemont wrote in his book on humanitarian imperialism, where he mentioned that the the story of the 20th century and the fight for socialism in the 20th century is that the 20th century was a century of decolonization. One of the primary fights that took place in the 20th century was that to remove colonial domination from places that had been occupied for decades, if not centuries, by European powers. So when people were fighting to change their own local conditions, they also had to throw off the yoke of foreign domination. You talk about the problem of fighting empire, the sense that empire is a key force in shaping the personal experiences of Koreans, whether they're in the north or south of the country. And I found that in your book, there's an enormous focus on the continuity of colonial domination from the Japanese occupation through to the United States occupation, today exemplified in the body of the South Korean administration, being comprised of people who previously had collaborated with the Japanese occupation and today uh, were placed in power to collaborate with a new occupation. Um, I think you really strongly make the argument in the book and in the presentation of the book that the forces that constitute today's North Korea or the DPRK were for sovereignty and independence of Korea, that Kim and the bands of resistance fighters that coalesced into present-day North Korea are different than South Korea, which was imposed as a sort of puppet state. So when we think in U.S. media of the North and the South, if you're looking at the CIA version of history, you would imagine that perhaps North Korea was an artificially imposed entity created by the Soviet Union, whereas South Korea was perhaps a democratically constituted nation. But of course, that is the exact inverse of what happened. So can you tell us how the DPRK organically coalesced out of a resistance to all forms of occupation and how that differs from how South Korea was instituted? Yeah, I sh should mention that the, the division of Korea into South and North was effected by the United States. Uh, two colonels at 1945, two U.S. Army colonels, drew a line across the Korean Peninsula at the 38th parallel to divide the country into separate Soviet and U.S. occupation zones for the purposes of accepting the Japanese surrender at the end of the Second World War. The agreement reached between the United States and 
uh, the Soviets was that this division and occupation of the peninsula would last no more than five years to be followed by elections for a national government. Um, at the end of 1948, not the end of 1948, in 1948, uh, Koreans of both the South and the North um, asked both occupying armies to withdraw their forces from the peninsula. Uh, the Soviets complied, withdrawing at the end of 1948, uh, but the Americans refused to withdraw. Um, at one point in the summer of 1949, they withdrew combat troops, but they left behind military advisors and secret protocols giving them control over the South Korean military and police. But the Americans had an intention that was arrived at during the Second World War that they would uh, establish a dominant role in Korea, that they would um, have a major sway over Korean affairs. And one of the ways they decided to do that was to establish, as you mentioned, a puppet state, uh, South Korea. South Korea would be the state through which the United States exercised its influence in Korea. Um, now, the CIA version that you refer to, the CIA version would hold that the Soviet Union established a Stalinist communist state in the North, that it was imposed upon people in the North. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, the Soviet Union, as we just saw, as I just mentioned, withdrew its forces in 1948 at the request of uh, Koreans. Uh, the Soviets also allowed Koreans to organize their own affairs in their occupation zone. Um, and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or North Korea, was established also, as you mentioned, by anti-Japanese resistance fighters. Uh, these were Koreans who had dedicated their lives and given their blood to fighting the Japanese to overcome Japanese colonialism to free their country. Um, so North Korea organically evolved out of this struggle against Japanese colonialism. On the other hand, the United States, looking for Koreans to staff its new puppet state, looked to collaborators with the uh, Japanese. And what they did was they recruited every quizzling, every hireling, every trader they could find. And to the extent that uh, when the South Korea or the Korean War broke out in 1950, almost every top commander in the South Korean armed forces was a veteran of the officer corps of the Japanese Imperial Army. Now, interestingly, many of those people in the Japanese Imperial, or many of these traders, had been involved in hunting down the uh, anti-Japanese resistance fighters, the Koreans, such as the founder of North Korea, Kim Il-sung. He was a major and a very important anti-Japanese resistance fighter. Uh, who the Japanese actually developed an anti-Kim unit specifically to hunt him down. And that anti-Kim unit was staffed by Korean collaborators, many of whom became major figures within this new puppet state that the United States established on the Korean Peninsula. Yes. Uh, when I introduced your talk yesterday uh, downtown, I mentioned that what you are doing for us is you're providing us with a historical perspective. Your approach has been historical, and it has been to look at what actually happened in Korea. In this case, at the immediate 
outset, uh, the end of the Second World War, what happens if you look at Korea? If you're someone from the present looking back 1945 and you're looking at Korea, what do you see? From your talks, I get the impression that you have an overwhelming body of Korean people who for years, in fact for them, for decades, have been involved in a pitched battle against the nastiest forms of colonialism in this Japanese occupation. And if you were to leave Koreans to their own devices in 1945, you're not going to end up with the situation we have today. So can you tell us how it happened that the U.S. invited itself in there and changed the political development that was occurring at the time? Yeah, and you mentioned that you'd left Korea to Koreans. Um, if at the end of the Second World War, when the Japanese Empire was defeated and Koreans were allowed to organize their own affairs, what would Korea have become? And it's pretty clear to U.S. historians and other historians, people working in the field, there's a consensus on this, that Korea would have become a communist country from north to south. Um, not because communism was imposed on Koreans, but because Koreans freely chose it, seeing communism as a solution to the political and economic problems that had bedeviled the country for decades. The United States obviously uh, was opposed to a communist Korea, and the United States took steps to ensure that communism, at least within the part of Korea that it controlled, would be crushed. The United States from 1945 until 1950 led a very vicious anti-leftist, anti-insurgency struggle. Uh, there was an enormous uh, left-led guerrilla struggle against the new essentially U.S. occupation. There was a U.S. military occupation that succeeded the Japanese military occupation. So at the end of uh, the Second World War, suddenly Koreans are presented with freedom in the fir first time in four decades. And then the United States arrives. Uh, the Koreans had proclaimed their own republic called the Korean People's Republic. They got together. They organized local affairs. They brought local governing committees together into a national government. They declared their Korean People's Republic, a republic for, of, and by Koreans. The United States arrived in its occupation zone, refused to recognize the republic, and set about to crush it, to completely demolish it. And this was the project of the United States for the first three years uh, on the peninsula until uh, it managed to establish its puppet state. But this continued, uh, and the new puppet state, South Korea, became a viciously anti-leftist uh, state on the same par as, as Nazi Germany in terms of its aversion, its antipathy to anything that was left-wing. And that's not really an exaggeration at all, and, and we get into that in detail in the book. Uh, as you point out, the Koreans had been suffocated for decades under colonial occupation with the Japanese, and you looked in the book in detail in the resistance that had been formed, in the resistance actions, protests, pickets, military actions, the brutal repression of Korean guerrillas by the Japanese occupation, you know, the, the existence of collaborators and how servile you would have to be to collaborate with an entity that governed Korea the way it did. You know, the, the second-class status Koreans uh, enjoyed, I suppose, in, in this Japanese greater co-prosperity sphere. There's this, this whole history of being subjugated under the boot 
of an empire for decades and the role of other great powers, whether it be Russia or America or other countries. It's a fascinating history, and it's something you have to understand in order to see the development of Korea. Because as you pointed out, and I've seen myself, you can read U.S. history of Korea. You can read American accounts of the Korean War where American historians will say Korea was going to go communist. The Koreans in the North and the South were favorable to the idea of a communist revolution in Korea because of the relationship between communist struggles and anti-colonial struggles and the role of communists in the resistance movements against the Japanese and during the Second World War and Russia's role in reducing the Japanese in Asia, reducing the Japanese power and cooperating with Korean resistance forces. So the Americans understood and have admitted that they feared Koreans across the North and South as one body would form of their own volition a communist republic in Korea and sought to prevent that from happening by establishing um, out of thin air a, a state in the U.S.-occupied portion of Korea, which has become what we know as South Korea, although it was simply formed as a result of a, of a U.S. military occupation of Korea. So that's fascinating because you take the whole history of the, the Japanese occupation and the collaboration with the Japanese by elements of the Korean population and show the continuity of that in the post-war situation under the American setup. So when we talk about South Korea, we see a situation where people who had been trained by the Japanese establishment and apparatus, who had been indoctrinated by it and who had taken part in military actions against fellow Koreans, were then elevated into positions of authority and military responsibility by the U.S. occupying power, just as they did the same in Japan and Germany, rehabilitating many elements from the fascist era. Obviously, the game plan was the same in South Korea. And you mentioned it right here that it, it was a state on par in many respects with Nazi Germany. Uh, that's something that we tend to forget about today. When we talk about the North and the South of Korea, people forget what kind of regime existed and continues to exist in South Korea. I'm wondering if you can tell us, you know, in terms of its uh, relationship to organized labor, in terms of its relationship to North-South rapprochement, in terms of its relationship to leftism and so on, how did the, the South Korean state operate as a military dictatorship? Yeah, if you think about this, so the South Korean state is essentially imposed upon Korea. And, and an interesting matter that I should point out is that when the South Korea was established as the Republic of Korea, the understanding of the Americans was that the Republic of Korea was a state that would govern all of Korea, including the North. Um, when the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or North Korea, was established. It was established after the Republic of Korea um, by default. Uh, Koreans didn't want a Republic of Korea because they recognized if you established a Republic of Korea in the South, um, that you were politically dividing the country. Uh, Koreans didn't want their country politically divided, so they were opposed to this move by the Americans to establish their own state on the peninsula. Um, but from the U.S. perspective, if we now look at this and if we understand that Koreans are inspired by communism. Koreans are looking for a communist state, including the Koreans living in the South, and now you've imposed 
a state on them which they oppose. So your state is going to have to be highly repressive because the people don't want it. They want a leftist, communist government. They want land reform. They're not given land reform because the United States favors the landlords. Uh, the landlords had collaborated with the Japanese, and now they're collaborating with the United States. So it's a highly anti-left, uh, exceedingly repressive government. Um, repressive to the extent, and a guerrilla insurgency arises to throw off the yoke of this U.S. tyranny. And the United States uh, organizes the South Korean forces, and uh, they organize an anti-insurgency campaign. They organize concentration camps in which they place leftists, uh, and they attempt to crush the left. Uh, by the time when the Korean War breaks out in 1950, or just before that, uh, the South Korean state is faced with the problem of what do you do with all of these leftists that we've immured in our concentration camps? And they have hundreds of thousands of people in concentration camps. In fact, they arrested so many leftists, they had to build concentration camps because they couldn't fit them in the jails anymore. So essentially what they did is they simply exterminated these people. And, and it's... Uh, very much like what we might have seen in Nazi Germany with respect to the, the crackdown on the left, the crackdown on socialists and communists and labor organizers. In South Korea, you could have been thrown into a concentration camp for organizing um, labor unions, for example. Um, the South Korean state established soon after its formation a notorious law known as the National Security Law, which continues to exist today, which is essentially an anti-communist law, which defines North Korea as an illegal organization illegally occupying um, territory over which South Korea regards itself as having sovereignty. Uh, and anyone who has anything pleasant to say, anything uh, you know, remotely complimentary to say about North Korea is considered to be showing sympathy to an illegal organization and is therefore liable to be thrown in jail. Many South Koreans have been thrown in jail for their political views. Um, South Korea has been a highly repressive police state. Um, there were uh, members of the American um, or American human rights groups, civil liberties organizations have gone to South Korea in, in the 50s, for example, uh, in the late 40s, and have remarked on uh, how much of a police state South Korea is. Uh, so the way South Korea evolved, what South Korea is, is very different from what we're led to believe it is. I mean, it's portrayed to us as being kind of a liberal democratic state with uh, considerable freedoms. It has more freedoms today than it had, say, prior to 1990, but it's still a very repressive state. Yes, it was hardly an outpost or bastion of democracy and liberty during the Cold War. And Economically, it was neck and neck with uh, the North for most of the Cold War. And that's an interesting story, too. Um, today, the South Korean economy is much larger than the North's. It's able to militarily dwarf the North. Its military spending is much greater than that of the DPRK. It wasn't always like that. Economically, they were much closer together until the tail or end of the Cold War. South Korea is considered an economic success story today. 
how did it, from reading your book, you can see that it appears South Korea was able to become something of an economic titan by discarding the conventional wisdom of what we're led to believe is the road to development and economic success under the current neoliberal order. So how is it that South Korea became eventually prosperous? What's the relation of the struggle with the North and these ideological battles to its present-day economic growth? Yeah, um, so the United States has a certain view about how developing countries ought to develop. And that view is essentially that developing countries have to adopt free trade and free enterprise and free markets uh, and open their doors to U.S. investment or investment from abroad. Uh, They cannot do things like uh, impose um, or erect tariff barriers to incubate infant industry or provide subsidies to domestic industry to help them grow so that they can compete on an an international scale. Uh, They shouldn't use state-owned enterprises. They shouldn't develop an industrial strategy or any kind of economic planning. That's all verboten. Um, And countries that have tried to pursue those strategies have often been targeted Um, in very vigorous ways by the United States. But that didn't happen in the case of South Korea. Um, South Korea was on the front lines of the Cold War, and there was a struggle for the hearts and minds of the world. Uh, The North Korean economy um, was far more vigorous than the South Korean economy for many years, uh, partly because North Korea was more highly industrialized than the South, Uh, Probably also because uh, of the um, state ownership and uh, economic planning. The United States then indulged the South Koreans. They allowed the South Koreans to to pursue all of those policies that I just said were prohibited today. Uh, So these would be policies like uh, state-owned enterprises, industrial planning. In fact, the South Koreans had five-year economic plans resembling the five-year planning cycles that the Soviet Union or China had, or that North Korea had itself. Um, They also allowed the South Koreans to subsidize domestic firms to establish uh, tariff barriers, and they invested in South Korea uh, heavily. And one of the ways they invested was by, um, they provided direct injections of cash into South Korea in exchange for the South Koreans participating in the Vietnamese War. This is something that's not widely recognized, but uh, the South Korean military provided hundreds of thousands of troops to uh, this Vietnam War, uh, a war uh, against uh, national liberation in the Indo-Chinese region, a war against people who shared a common uh, you know, history of... Um, of uh, oppression at the hands of the Japanese. Um, the Americans also ensured that there were plenty of opportunities for Japanese, or not Japanese, uh, South Korean businesses in Vietnam. So essentially the United States undertook to hothouse the South Korean economy to, in, to ensure that it beat the North Korean economy and surpassed it. And sure enough, it did. But 
Uh, and then it created this myth that, you know, the South Korean economy is vibrant because it's allowed free trade and free enterprise and free markets. Well, um, that's uh, complete fiction. I find it absolutely fascinating, and it's discussed at numerous points in the book. Um, I think you mentioned The Economist. Hajun Chang as well, to some extent. He's researched that issue in depth and is famous for doing so. And you relate it to the Cold War in particular. I mean, as a frontline state against communism, South Korea was afforded certain privileges, as you pointed out, that other states in the U.S.-led order were not given. So South Korea was allowed to engage in state economic planning, heavy state economic planning, funding of capital goods. And also, the economy was juiced by its participation in wars, just as Japan was. By helping out in Vietnam, not just sending soldiers, but becoming a transshipment point, by taking part in the production of war goods and war material. So the South Korean state was not characteristic of most of the so-called free world in terms of developing countries. In terms of former colonies, South Korea was allowed to manage itself and to engage in economic planning, uh, to create its own military-industrial complex. So that, that is why we have the South Korea that we have today. Although it is an economically dynamic powerhouse, apparently, it, it still comes at quite a cost. You look at it a little bit in the book, South Korea is a vast workhouse, to make our flat screen televisions and whatnot, Koreans are slaving away all day in factories. And depression is high. Social dislocation is very high. There's, there's actually a, quite an, an emotional crisis in South Korea, as far as I understand, from being a subcontractor to, to U.S. economic interests. But they have, they have had a very different experience as a former colony because of their frontline relationship, just as uh, West Germany was afforded quite a number of privileges in terms of post-war investment because it was facing down East Germany, whereas money did not go to Britain. The Marshall Plan, other, other forms of funding didn't go to Britain, didn't go to Canada. It went to West Germany in order to build it up as a bulwark. So the best place to be you know, in the Cold War, in, in a fight between communism and, and capitalism, if you're on the capitalist side, I, I suppose, is right on the front line so that the money goes to you. As long as a war doesn't happen, perhaps you can develop your economy as long as you're willing to subcontract tens of thousands of your soldiers as a colonial occupation force to fight Vietnam and other countries. Because you point out South Korea is actually a militarily aggressive country. Although North Korea has not gone and invaded people outside of Korea. The South Koreans have taken part in Vietnam and more recently the wars in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So South Korea is actually a belligerent military power. Mm-hmm. It's participated in uh, US, the U.S. wars of aggression in Afghanistan and in Iraq. It contributed 20,000 troops to the war in Iraq. Um, so when we count that it's been involved in uh, Vietnam, in Iraq, and Afghanistan, uh, and also it's been involved as a U.S. extension in the war in Korea, the Korean War, um, which is you know a war 
in, in their case, from the perspective of the South Korean military, a war to put down this attempt by the North to unify the country and to drive a foreign military occupation off the peninsula, then they're involved in wars against national liberation struggles. That has been the history of the South Korean military. Yes. It leads to one of the, the major questions of the book, which is, how do you get rid of a colonial occupation? And we see the conflict between two major approaches. And you mentioned the resistance fighters that coalesced into the state of the DPRK in the 40s and 50s, Kim and the other famous members of that band. Um, they had one perspective, which is that they could never really count on outside forces. And you looked, you explored the opinion and ideology of the leading members of the resistance to colonialism in Korea in terms of how do we get liberated? Because you have countries like Vietnam and China that were also under colonial domination by the Japanese and perhaps eventually by the French or the United States. Ho Chi Minh was famous for exploring the possibility of asking nicely to the Americans could you help us out in getting rid of colonialism? And that's one approach. Can you ask the colonizers or the leaders of the free world to help you end a colonial occupation of the country? Or is it the case that they won't go away without a long, protracted, and nasty fight? It seems that North Korea, the DPRK today, has always believed that only Koreans can really be counted on to liberate Korea based on their experiences. So can you tell us about what led to this kind of thinking? Well, um, Sigmund Rhee, who was imposed uh, by the United States as the first president of South Korea, um, soon after the Japanese absorbed Korea into their empire, was in Washington. That's He was exiled. He was exiled actually before the, the Japanese occupation. And he spent most of his years prior to being imposed as president of South Korea in the United States. And he spent his time lobbying the United States to help free Korea from this Japanese tyranny. And others, other national liberation leaders, uh, had made appeals to the great powers. You know, you have to help us against the Japanese. You have to help free us from the Japanese. And Kim Il-sung, the, the first leader of North Korea looked at this and he scoffed and said, this is ridiculous because, you know, uh, asking the United States, for example, to help free Korea, he likened this to uh, a robber being in your home, an armed robber is in your home and he's plundering your home and you appeal to an armed robber outside the home to come into your house uh, to help you evict the armed robbers already in your house. Uh, so his point was the only way in which you were going to get the armed robber out of your house was to take up arms yourself and drive, drive the armed robber out. Uh, you couldn't appeal to the United States because the United States was a colonial power. I know the United States doesn't like to call itself a colonial power, but it was very much a colonial power which connived into selling Korea into colonial slavery. So um, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, the United States laid claim to the Philippines. Um, 
and the United States worked out an arrangement with the Japanese. And the arrangement was, uh, if you, Tokyo, recognize our claim to the Philippines, we'll recognize your claim to Korea. Well, this infuriated Koreans. And it infuriated people like Kim Il-sung who said, how could you trust the Americans? Why are you appealing to the Americans as if the Americans are somehow going to free us? This is an imperialist power. Um, also, Wilson, uh, the president of uh, the United States during the First World War, or at the end of the First World War, seemed to have uh, promised emancipation for colonial people. And many colonial peoples believe that Wilson's uh, 14 points had promised their emancipation. Um, he had never really a promised emancipation for the colonial peoples, but that's what they believed he'd promised. And when, at the end of the war and after arrangements were made for the post-war settlement, they discovered that they weren't going to be emancipated from colonialism, uh, they rose up in anger. Um, they rose up in Korea and elsewhere, but in Korea in, in 1921, and started to march and demonstrate. And Kim Il-sung said, well, you can march and demonstrate all you want and make appeals to public opinion and get public opinion on your side, international opinion on your side, but it's not going to make any difference. The only thing that's going to make any difference is if Koreans struggle themselves uh, by taking up arms and driving the occupation off the peninsula. Um, and, uh, you know, this became part of the idea of Yushe, which is part of the North Korean ideology, which is that only Koreans can be responsible for Koreans because, as Kim Il-sung would argue, no one else really cares about Koreans. Other people have their own interests. Uh, they're not going to put their life on their line or spill their blood for the liberation of Korea. So if a people wants to emancipate themselves from oppression, they're going to have to do it themselves. They can't rely on others to do it for them. It's like Lucy and the football and Charlie Brown. In the book, you explored how at many times, at many intervals or instances, the Koreans who desired independence would be disappointed by reliance on outside forces, that maybe Woodrow Wilson is going to liberate us. Nope. Maybe the Americans getting rid of the Japanese, that will liberate us in the America. Nope. Nope. It's just nope. And you end up saying, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. And it's that Korean experience, perhaps, that led them to be, in, in the words of, of one expert, North Korea becoming the embodiment of the UN charter in some respects, in that countries should not be pushed around by big countries, that you have to respect each nation, nation state as an equal on the international stage that has its own right to make decisions and participate in the United Nations. So ultimately, you think that is what Koreans want? Yeah, I'll, um, Korean, as you, as you pointed out, some have argued that the DPRK, North Korea, is the embodiment of the UN Charter. It's the embodiment of the UN Charter because it's been a very vocal advocate for the idea of the equality and sovereignty of states, which is what the UN Charter promises. Um, the North Koreans are vehemently opposed to empire. Uh, but the current international order, at least as seen by the United States, is one of tyranny, of empire, of a U.S.-led global order uh, which, in which all countries are subordinate to the United States. 
to the North Koreans, uh, that's not a democratic order. A democratic international order is one in which all states are equal, all states have sovereignty, all states interact with each other for mutual benefit. Strong states don't exploit weak states. Strong states don't have the authority to uh, command weak states. All states are equal. More perhaps, well, I shouldn't say that this is unique to North Korea. Other states also embody uh, the UN Charter, but the North Koreans have been consistent advocates of the UN Charter view of a democratic international order. Absolutely. And there you have it from Stephen Gowans. This book is Patriots, Traitors, and Empires, the story of Korea's struggle for freedom. It contains a detailed discussion of the Japanese occupation of Korea and the geopolitics that were involved with Russia and other powers, the resistance movement that was formed and its ties to political ideologies like communism and how that influenced the post-war situation in Korea and led to rapid U.S intervention in the area, setting the stage for what exists today. And of course, the two states, two sides in Korea being pitted against one another, one that views very much a Korean-directed move towards liberation, national liberation, the other relying on the United States, just as it had relied on foreign powers before. It's a fascinating story. It looks at the economic development in South Korea and North Korea. It looks at international alliances and even why a country like the DPRK would want to support similar resistance struggles in Palestine or Cuba or other countries as has occurred historically. So it's a fascinating study and it puts the big picture and the long view in Korea and helps us understand the kinds of decisions that are being made. So you can order this book from Baraka Books, which is at barakabooks.com b-a-r-a-k-a b-o-o-k-s dot com it started publishing as of this month and is being toured right now so do pick up a copy do order it and uh, I, I hope everyone picks up a copy so thanks very much Stephen thank you Brendan <laughs>